Hi, just a quick apology to all my listeners. This episode apparently had some sort of technical glitch when I recorded them and have sort of a a little tiny skips and pops occasionally in the recording. You can still understand it. So I thought about re-recording them and decided that in the interest of of time, I would not re-record. So please forgive that the quality of these recordings is not perfect. That was a technical glitch in my instruments. So I apologize again and hope that you don't let that distract from the message and that you can still enjoy this episode. And then I think we corrected that. So there shouldn't be a problem after this week. Thank you. Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me this week. We are talking about Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 5 and 6. These are great chapters. Again, wonderful witnesses of Jesus Christ, testament to his incredible earthly ministry, and such a guide and blessing to us to study and to take in these wonderful stories, these wonderful actions of the Savior as he walked and talked amongst the people. I hope you're enjoying this year as much as I am. Honestly, I love every year that we study the scriptures. (laughs) I hope our appreciation and love grows every time we open these wonderful books. And I really pray that the Spirit will strive with us because we are coming closer to Christ in our studies and in our applications of these incredible teachings. Let's just start with John the Baptist. We have the sad story of the end of John the Baptist's life as a martyr to his great mission as a forerunner to Jesus Christ, his cousin. Just to clarify, I know it's mentioned a little bit in this scripture, but there was a reason that John the Baptist condemned Herod's marriage to Herodias. It can be a little confusing because in the law of Moses, if a brother died, then the remaining or the surviving brother was actually required to, if she were childless, to take that childless widow to wife so that he could raise up seed unto his brother. That was a part of the ancient law. But that's not what happened here. Herod's brother had not died. So Herodias was not entitled to divorce him. He had not committed any transgression that would have allowed for her to leave him according to Jewish law. But she and Herod had been attracted to each other, and each of them were married to somebody else. So Herodias would not have been able to get a divorce in Jewish law, so she went to a Roman court because she was a Roman citizen and was divorced without cause, basically, from her husband, Herod's brother, and then marries Herod. Herod also was married. He had made sort of political liaison with another nearby ruler and he, of an Arabian empire, and he had married the daughter of that Arabian leader in order to cement the deal, and he got tired of being married to her and divorced her and married Herodias. So this was not according to Jewish law. It was just, you know, selfishness on their part. And this marriage then was not recognizable in a, in a just system according to Jewish law. So, and Herod set up as the leader of the people. So John the Baptist had publicly and apparently relentlessly condemned this marriage. 
and this bothered, mostly Herodias. I think Herod wanted to kind of ignore it, but Herodias was really mad about that. And so she's pestering her husband. Her husband doesn't like the public calling out, and they imprison John the Baptist. Now, it's very clear in these different gospel renditions here that while Herod was okay locking up John the Baptist, he did not want to execute him because he believed in some of the miracles that John had done and in the preaching, and he was not wanting to cross that. Nevertheless, here he is a proud, arrogant guy and weak to boot. So when there's a big party and he's entertained with his friends there by the daughter of Herodias that is named Salome. And we don't get that name from the New Testament record, but from the writings of Josephus, who was a very famous Jewish historian. So Josephus names her as Salome. She dances for Herod and his friends, and everybody is pleased. So Herod makes this rash promise to give her whatever she asks for up to a half of his kingdom. She, having been counseled by her mother, who apparently was a pretty vindictive woman, says, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a charger. And Herod feels trapped. And feeling the peer pressure, since he made this promise rashly in front of a group of his his buddies, he sends immediately the order to execute John, and they do so. So it's a terrible story. I mean, what a, it's a stupid reason to do stuff, you know, that we're feeling pressured by our friends. It's not uncommon in this life to see people who do things just to not lose face in front of friends. But then we're responsible for our actions when all is said and done. So later we read in these chapters that hearing of the mighty miracles performed by Christ, Herod starts to be afraid that John the Baptist has come back to life and might be a danger to him, but we don't see that anything really happens there. Just incidentally, and and this is historical tradition, that all these three had kind of miserable lives afterwards. Herod because he did break that treaty with the Arabian prince by sending back his first wife, you know, is then attacked and suffers a great military defeat at the hands of that Arabian empire. And so he and Herodias are banished and they end up traveling to Gaul and then, excuse me, later to Spain and they kind of die in exile. Salome actually goes with them into exile, but Again, this is sort of legend. I don't know if we have actual proof of this or not, but it is suggested that as she was crossing a body of water that had frozen over, but she needed to get over that to the other side. As she was crossing the ice, the ice breaks. She falls through the water up to her neck, gyrates wildly in what people say then this is her final dance, so to speak, as she danced before Herod in order to get John executed. So she dances in this freezing water. She's trying to survive, but the ice closes around her head and neck and eventually decapitates her. So that sounds like legend to me, but it's sort of poetic. What they're saying is that what goes around comes around, and she suffers this kind of death that is sort of an echo of the death that she caused John the Baptist. Anyway, kind of interesting trivia there. Christ grieves the loss of his cousin John, and it's a very brief comment about that. It says that he 
This is Matthew 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And the footnote says that's a solitary place. So he wants to be alone for a moment. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And then in verse 14, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. So even in his grief, he is not selfish. He goes for a moment to be alone and to mourn, but he is quickly followed by and probably surrounded by a great multitude because they still desire of him, his healing powers on their behalf and on behalf of their loved ones, and he's compassionate. You know, I think that's important too. Grief can do funny things to people. And while it's understandable that we grieve the loss of loved ones or other losses as well, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a child, any significant loss can cause grief. And that's a human emotion that we should process. We've talked about that in the past, the need to process in a healthy way and detoxify our negative emotions so that they don't remain in the system and do damage to our well-being. Nevertheless, we also need to put some parameters on our grief. I say this delicately, okay, because it's a very personal journey and nobody has the right to tell you how much or how little to grieve. Some kinds of grief, like the loss of a child, you know, we may not fully get over that in this life, as we say, because it's so unnatural. We don't expect to have to bury our children. We expect to bury our parents, but not our children. It's not easy to bury a parent either sometimes, especially if it's a premature, unexpected death. The point is, Grief is personal, but let it not consume us. Sometimes we are overly consumed with the intensity of our emotion, and that's a little bit of a concern. We need to to be thoughtful and prayerful about, like, what is an appropriate way to grieve? Remember that beautiful verse that says, sorrow endureth for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now, it is going to be longer than a night for serious losses. I understand that, and I don't think that that's required by God that it just be one night. What I think the point is, is to remember that there should be joy at the end of our grief, and that getting there is important, that we can allow ourselves to experience the, the pain of loss, because that is human and normal and should not be denied or suppressed or repressed. Nevertheless, if we end up stuck in that grief for too long, or our functionality is inhibited by that grief for too long, that's, that's not the desire of our Heavenly Father. He has the answers. He has the ability to restore all that has been lost in this life when He comes again. And He has promised that He will wipe every tear from our eyes and heal every wound and comfort every wounded heart. Let us believe that to the point that we can appropriately, at the right time, put away our grief and turn to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the restoration to come from the great restorer. Let us trust in that. This life is not meant to be miserable. We certainly have moments of misery, but they should not, they should not consume us. I mentioned this before, but as I talk to my grandchildren now, if I've talked about stress or 
difficulty or trouble, I tell them, you know, it's natural to feel it, but we don't want to land in it. It's not the right place to land. We're not to land in misery. We're to experience it and move past it and come back into the hope that is in Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. That is where we are meant to to return to again and again, to knowing that in Christ is our hope and he will keep his promises if we remain with our eyes single to him and we move forward diligently. Okay, let's move forward. Mark 6, let's move to that for a moment. And of course, we're going to go back and forth because there are some stories that are told in all three of these books, Matthew, Mark, and John, that we're studying this week. But I want to mention some things that are mentioned specifically in Mark chapter 6. First of all, he says (laughs) in the first verse that he went out from thence and came into his own country. So this is his, uh, the place where he grew up that he comes through and his disciples followed him. And he begins to teach in the synagogue. And then this is the response of his former neighbors. From whence hath this man these things? And jumping ahead to verse 3, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James. And James so we have a list here of Christ's half-brothers that were sons of both Mary and Joseph and are not his sisters that are with us. So they're not named. But as we know from other parts of the record, they did not really believe Mary knows who Christ is. But the siblings do not accept that for a time After Christ's death and resurrection, we know that at least one of his brothers becomes an apostle. So he becomes a believer, but it takes a while. So there's not a lot of support at this time from his half-brothers and sisters. And these people are offended at Christ. And in verse 4, this well-known statement, Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And sadly, that happens a lot, and Christ is just putting it out here in sort of a proverb form here because we've heard it so many times that sometimes prophet is without honor in his own country or amongst his own kin. As they say, familiarity breeds contempt. And that's sad that sometimes living so closely with somebody, we lose our perspective. It makes things seem too too common. It's one of the real blessings, actually, and and miracles almost of of Joseph Smith's family, because they were loyal to him. And that is, that's a really amazing tribute to, to them. You know, a younger sibling for most of them, and yet they were loyal to him. They, they trusted that he had seen what he said he saw, and they continued in their belief. That's that's a beautiful story and not all that common, actually. So kind of a tender gift to Joseph Smith. I've mentioned before, but I have such a soft spot for Hiram Smith, who was an older brother to Joseph, but loyal, fiercely loyal from the beginning to the end, trusting in his brother's prophetic call to be the prophet of the Restoration and remaining loyal to him always, up to and including their martyr's death at Carthage. Back to Mark 6, we read in verse 5, he, meaning Christ, could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. He was limited in the miracles he could do because there was no faith or very little faith. 
And this is so important when we remember these miracles, that even though there really were multitudes who came, they had enough faith to be healed. As we see here in this week's readings, their faith was limited, but it was sufficient to allow for the compassionate miracles that Christ performed amongst the multitudes who followed after him, believing that he had power to heal, believing that he was able to be a representative of God. Now, they didn't go far enough with that belief, but again, talk about that in a moment. Verse 6 just kind of ends this little story. He marveled because of their unbelief. Then right after this, in verse 7, he takes the 12 and begins to send them forth two by two and gives them power over unclean spirits. That's pretty powerful stuff that they now can use priesthood power to cast out devils and probably to heal as well. Now, he, again, he says, no purse or script, basically, <laughs> don't take money. But go and stay with those who will have you. And if the city won't have you, then as you leave, this is verse 11, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, let's talk just for a moment. This is a real and a very strong anti-entitlement message. <laughs> what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we live in a world where so much comes so easily to people who are in abundant circumstances. Now, I know that not everybody is in abundant circumstance, but many of us in, in the kind of West have, have lived in a kind of abundance for quite a while, and Many of our children, and perhaps we ourselves, have grown up with some entitlement, feeling like we deserve things, or that if we don't have what we want, that we are being ill-used, and not really considering that there's a consequence to our behavior. And what I'm trying to say is that that entitlement goes so far as to act as though we can kind of do whatever we want, and, and we can still have the prize that, that we seek even if we have not really met the conditions of that prize. And I've talked about this before, but it's, it's very true that some people just have really adopted this idea that, well, if God really does love his children, if God is good, if Jesus is the Savior, then they'll save everybody. And it won't really matter if you kept the Ten Commandments or any of the other commandments. It won't really matter if you lived a good life. You know, if you just kind of want Christ to save you, then he'll save you because, you know, that's kind of how it works. There don't have to be that many conditions. I mean, think of how we have really distorted the idea of unconditional love. We we have turned it into an entitlement. I mean, I'm not saying God doesn't love his children, but he has clearly set conditions on entry into his various kingdoms. Those three kingdoms have conditions. Well, there are not too many conditions of the celestial. Basically, you do what you want, you'll end up in the celestial kingdom. But if those, you know, among us want to be in the terrestrial kingdom, they have to harness the natural man, meet a certain condition, and they will not be left in a celestial kingdom, but risen, they'll be raised up to a terrestrial kingdom. And if we want all that God has... And all that he offers us, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness and continue diligently in the path of Christ as our exemplar, as our Savior, we can have all of it. But again, at the level that we seek, at the level we receive, at the level we desire. And we even know that within the celestial kingdom, there are three heavens or degrees. So according to our desires, according to our, our hungering and thirsting after righteousness and the willingness that we have to become more like the Savior— 
raised up and sanctified by the Holy Ghost to that stature, then we can have it. Because God really does grant unto men according to their desires. How often do I repeat this verse from Alma 29 early on in that chapter? So God is generous and good, but we have to decide how much we are determined to receive. God forces no man to heaven, and he will not remove the conditions. Remember that President Nelson, when he was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, gave a speech called Divine Love. I believe it's in February 2003. I should look that up, but I apologize. I'm not going to. It's called Divine Love by Russell Nelson. And in that speech, he very clearly states that while God's love is wonderful, it's amazing. He uses wonderful descriptors in this paragraph. You know, it's it's unending, it's generous, it's merciful. I forget all the words he uses, but then he says it cannot be called unconditional. It cannot correctly be called unconditional because the higher levels of God's love are completely conditional on our willingness to receive by obedience, by living a covenant life. So, again, this is sort of anti-entitlement stuff that Christ is sharing with his apostles right off the bat. If people don't want to receive it, they're really going to miss out. And no, not everybody will pass, go, and collect $200. While everyone will be saved, remember, salvation exists in the telestial kingdom, so nobody is left in hell. Super generous. More than some of us will have chosen to receive, and yet it will be given unto them because of the merciful plan of our Heavenly Father and because of the incredible grace of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. But you are not entitled to all that God has. Nobody is. Actions have consequences. Our choices have consequences. It's important to recognize this and to not fall into our current obsession with entitlement in our world, where it's just kind of like, you know, Jesus is going to save everybody just because he's Jesus. Well, he is Jesus, and because of that, he is amazingly generous. Okay, he will save everybody, but not everybody will have all that is available. That depends on us and what we choose to receive We tend to live in a society that wants its cake and wants to eat it too. And sometimes it wants somebody else's cake as well. (laughs) It's not that way. And so what are the stern words here that are pretty serious warning? It shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. If they didn't want what you freely offered, they're not getting the great blessings that they could have had had they been receptive, had they been soft-hearted and humble. So the apostles go out and cast out many devils and heal many. And then that's when it says Herod hears of that and he thinks that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. So he's getting nervous there and others think it's Elias. And anyway, let's move now to John chapter 5. Again, we're never touching on all the cool stuff in these chapters, but just hitting some of the the highlights to talk about. Of course, there's this story, and it's actually nicely depicted in the series The Chosen, taking whatever poetic license they want to take, but they do a nice job, don't they, with, with some of these stories. At any rate, here he goes to the pool, which is called Bethesda, and there people are waiting until the angel stirs the water so they can be the first one in and be made whole. And here's a man who's 38 years with an infirmity that 
and he doesn't have any servant to take him down to the water. So even though he's there, he doesn't really have a hope of going into the pool first and being healed. So Christ heals him. Rise, take up thy bed and walk. This is John 5, 8. And immediately the man is made whole. And then, of course, the Pharisees are angry because he was healed on the Sabbath day. And note, I mean, they are very angry. Look at verse 16. This is not the first time we've read this. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Have we lost the meaning? I mean, how many times have we heard this kind of story now already in the New Testament where they are so rigid in their observance of the law, quote unquote, because they are trying, they are being rigid about their adherence to certain things while missing the point entirely. Now, this is not just a problem with the Pharisees of the New Testament. Frankly, brothers and sisters, we have this problem in abundance in our day where we, we miss the point. We lose the meaning. We become rigid about, about what we consider to be important without understanding the purpose, without understanding spirit that is meant there. Do not get me wrong. I'm not one of those who says that like, well, if you're not going to have the spirit, you can do whatever you want, or that it's okay to ignore the law just because some people observe it too rigidly. No, God wants obedience. He has, as I have said again and again, non-negotiable terms on which he will give us his kingdom, or as much of it as we desire, and demonstrate that through our obedience. Nevertheless, sadly, we, we go so far to the other end of the spectrum that sometimes we get so rigid about checking boxes. We become sort of a checklist Christian, where, you know, what do we think we're going to prove? Well, see, I did this and this and this. I did it, you know, carefully or with exactness, or I was, I was really consistent with it. But what was the purpose? And did we did we miss the point? Did we lose the spirit in our doing of that? I'm going to give some examples here in a minute. But I want to mention this as well, because I find this kind of interesting. Although this didn't really become part of the Jewish tradition until between the 2nd and 5th centuries, maybe you're aware that not only did the Jews have this, or from that time on, they had another book called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D. And the Talmud is studied in the Jewish tradition, as well as the Torah. So the Torah are the sacred scrolls, right? Those are the five books of Moses, considered sacred scripture by the Jews. And they are. That's where the law is given, right? The story of the Exodus is there, well, the whole creation, etc. And then the Exodus, and then the giving of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the Torah. Those are the sacred writings that the Jews study. But in studying those things, there were some rabbinical debates and discussions that, that continued throughout the history of the Jews, and then they started to compile some of those things, and that became the Talmud. Now, in some of the reading I did many years ago, probably when I was in high school or an undergrad, it's been a long time, that I heard the Talmud referred to by some as the fence around the Torah. And that's an interesting, I think, and descriptive way to look at it, meaning that the Jews became so concerned about not breaking the law of Moses that they said, well, let's not even get close to breaking the law of Moses. And they put additional strictures around the law of Moses in order to give them 
a buffer. Now, I talked about this a long time ago when we talked about temptation. And I talked about how it's not a bad thing. And, and I referenced a speech by Hartman Rector Jr., who was of the 70, that talked about, you know, live above the law and be free. Like, it's not a bad thing to say, like, well, you know, I just want to avoid the technical breaking of the law, but I want to set another buffer so that I don't even get close to that. Like we talked about not hanging over the cliff edge, you know, but hanging on by our fingernails. We talked about staying away from the cliff edge and giving space so that we don't even come close to being in danger of breaking the commandments of the Lord. And there's wisdom with that if it is done correctly, but these people went too far and it turned into rigidity. So this is why, and many of you have heard things like this, they designated even the number of steps that you could take on the Sabbath day without breaking the Sabbath. That's pretty rigid. That's not just, you know, creating a buffer. It's becoming kind of OCD about it, where like if you went beyond this number of steps, oh, that's too close. And this is where it even became, you know, if we're not going to work on the Sabbath, you can't even kindle a fire. So we won't even cook on the Sabbath day And very orthodox families, Jewish families today, can purchase stoves. They start on the day for the Sabbath, which is, of course, Friday for the Jews, because the Sabbath is Saturday. And you can start your meal in those ovens on Friday evening, and then they will continue to keep the food cooked or warm or whatever, but they won't strike a spark. In other words, there's no electricity that actually turns on on their Sabbath day, and that makes it so that they're observing the law. They don't turn light switches on if they're really Orthodox Jews, because there might be a spark somewhere along the electrical line, and that would be kindling a fire on the Sabbath day. So they're very, very, you know, sort of compulsive, additional things that are built around the law to make sure that they don't. And I read some of these rabbinic debates, and they were pretty fascinating can't say that I'm an expert about the Talmud, but I remember in reading a book about some of this stuff that it quoted from some rabbinic debates, and it was about whether or not a woman could throw out dirty dishwater on the Sabbath day. And after a long, long discussion, the rabbis concluded that no, she could not do that, because what if some of that water rolled downhill and found a seed that was already in the dirt not because she had planted it, because it was just a seed that had been dropped there in dirt. And the water might nourish that seed, and that seed might spring up and and sprout into a plant. And, oh no, that would be gardening, which would be work, and can't do that on the Sabbath day. So she could not throw out her dirty dishwater on the Sabbath. That's the kind of thing that started to happen this fence around the Torah became very rigid. And while, again, there is a good thing to staying as far away from sin as we can get, we don't want to become obsessed with it or so compulsive that that we become anal. And that's what they had already done, even though, again, Talmud is not really recorded or written until later by, by a few centuries. Already, they were demonstrating that kind of rigidity. You can't heal on the Sabbath day. That's rigid. Like, what is the goodness of God? Like, God doesn't want you to get your ox out of the mire, and Christ had already referred to their hypocrisy because he's like, what if you wouldn't take your cattle out of the stall to give them water, or if they were stuck in the mud, wouldn't get them out? Like, like, why are you being so rigid about doing good on the Sabbath? Or here we are hungry, and we are going through a cornfield, and we haven't got a place to eat, so we take some ears of corn and eat it, and you're going to condemn us for that because we're 
harvesting on the Sabbath day. No, we're eating because we're hungry and this is a way that we can provide. So this rigidity is the problem. Now, sometimes this happens to us as parents. It's not just to parents. It can be in any situation, but I'm, I'm just, I want to talk about, are we, are we becoming checklist Christians where we want to be very observant of our list of, of things that we believe required to the point where we, we lose the meaning or we lose the purpose? And again, this is not advocacy for being less obedient. That's not the point. We should be obedient and willing to comply with with both the letter and the spirit of law, but without losing our way, without losing the underlying purpose and meaning of these things, which are to bless, not to punish, not to control, not to beat ourselves or others up. So some examples, sad examples, all of them, frankly, but I mean, I've talked about this before. What are we doing with our scripture study, especially if we have children at home? Do our children enjoy the Come Follow Me curriculum? Do they enjoy that scripture time? Now, I realize that kids get in moods. They go through stages, and so sometimes they're less interested than other times. And I'm not suggesting that we just back off and don't require them to at least try to participate or whatever. But are we doing our part to avoid making it a rigid requirement and trying to keep the spirit of it? And that might require modification from time to time. We certainly don't want it to turn into a session where we're just preaching at our children or heaven forbid, we use it as an excuse to tell them off or to lecture to them. It's who wants to come to a daily time where you're going to get, you know, told off? And if our kids feel like that's what it is, we're just kind of taking the scriptures and turning them into a baseball bat and hitting them over the head with it every time we gather for scripture reading or prayer, then we're doing it wrong, brothers and sisters. We can do better. We can do better, and we might need to be thoughtful and prayerful. Well, we always need to be thoughtful and prayerful so we can seek the will of the Lord in how to best present this to our children and how to how to best invite the Spirit to be there. I have talked about this before, so I'll forgive the repetition, but are we showing some flexibility there rather than rigidity so that we don't miss out on the whole purpose of the of the requirement? Do we sometimes keep it shorter so that you know, allows for the times where our kids have more homework and they don't want to stay up too late or they don't want to be too behind in their homework. So they're like, can't we just keep it short? You know what? Sometimes we can keep short. We can be flexible about that. Sometimes we're, we become a little too checklisty. If it's not a positive experience, brothers and sisters, it's not accomplishing God's invitation to us. This is to bless our families, to help us become closer both to him and to each other. So if we're not feeling that, then let's go back to the drawing board, so to speak, get on our knees, pray about it, consult with our partners if we're married, and and say, how can we make this a more positive experience for our children, rather than some sort of onerous task that they they really resent? Because we might win the battle of checking off our list, but we lose the war, and we might even drive them right out of the church. We might drive them out of their belief or the chance to feel like believers, because we we make it negative instead of bringing in as much of the positive as we can. And again, this requires flexibility on our part, as opposed to rigidity. That's what we're talking about here. That's what the Savior was teaching. I remember, and I think I've told this story before too, but it's been a while, a woman who had actually taught some parenting classes in some different arenas, and she was an active member of the church, but she had 
a couple of teenage kids who did not want to pay their tithing. And she came to me with me, this was many years ago, and she said, you know, they're kind of rebellious. They don't like church. They wouldn't even pay their tithing if I didn't pay it for them. And I'm like, oh, wait, 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 hold on. <laughs> Go back a sec. What do you mean by that? And she said, well, they won't even pay their tithing if I don't withhold 10% from the earnings because she gave them certain jobs that were above and beyond their regular chores where they could earn some extra spending money if they did these chores and they like to have this spending money. So they would usually do some of those. And she said, when I have a, a payday and I pay them, I withhold 10% and I put it in an envelope and I put their names on it. And I'm like, well, you realize they're not paying their tithing. And she was like, well, it's their money. And I said, yeah, but they don't want to pay it. <laughs> so they're not tithing. See, you see the difference here? She's going with this checklist. I take 10% out of their money and I put it in an envelope, their name on it. Somehow they're a tithe payer. Not even close. They don't want to pay their tithing. So they're not tithe payers. That's, that's force. That's constraint. Honestly, that's Satan's plan. Christ never forces. God never forces. A whole third of host of heaven were lost because they wanted force to be employed in the plan, which would have completely destroyed and negated even the power the plan had to save anybody. Because force has no meaning. If people comply because of force, they are not really complying in their hearts. In fact, they become more resentful, dig their heels in, even if it doesn't show at first, and they become more resentful and, and rebellious. So anyway, we're not winning anything. But it was so interesting. Here was a good woman who had fallen into this trap of this checklist and rigidity. And interestingly, when I kind of, you know, challenged that idea, and I said, well, you realize they're not tithe payers. And she said, hmm. Well, but if I pay their tithing for them, they can't go to do baptisms in the temple. <laughs> I said, well, do you think they should go do baptisms in the temple if they don't want to pay their tithing? That is one of the questions on the recommend. <laughs> Are they really tithe payers or is this just a checklist somehow that you're imposing on them and it won't get them any closer to heaven? It won't get them any closer to the Lord. In fact, it tends to drive people away. And of course, the Pharisees were doing that. They were driving people away. Can you imagine condemning them for being healed on the Sabbath day, picking up their bed to walk? Okay, we have to relook at our lives and see what our interactions are like. Are we getting too rigid? Are we trying to be so careful about holding to a checklist that we lose the meaning? A few other examples. Well, I do have to say this about the scripture study because I have talked, sadly, to too many families where this has become a battle and where the kids really hate it. And I mean, again, I recognize sometimes we have a rebellious child. I'm not saying we should give up. I am not saying we should give up. We want to receive the blessings of, of trying to bring us into our family. So, you know, some flexibility on our part is, is definitely required, and we don't have to have them be perfect to get benefit from doing this. But we can talk to them about it and say like, hey, we're looking for these blessings. That's why I'm doing it. But I will keep it not to be too onerous. I will, you know, we're not going to make it this, this horrible, distasteful chore where you have to sit for much longer than you want to and be lectured to or, or somehow we're going to, you know, cross this off our list, even if it makes everybody miserable. We've got to be flexible. And I was talking with a woman the other day who's a wonderful one. <laughs> there are struggles, understandably, with some of our children, especially if they go through stages and whatever. But I said, look how sad it is that we take this this great inspiration that comes from our leaders to allow us to do this gospel study together as families and as a church, and, and we mess it up. It's sort of like never underestimate 
the human ability to take an inspired idea and mess it up. <laughs> That's so tragic. We can do better. Sometimes chores become a battle. And again, of course, kids don't love doing chores typically, but are we just dying on that mountain or are we lightening up a little bit and showing some flexibility and maybe helping them once in a while, rotating around and saying, hey, I'll help you for a while. As long as you're working, I'll work with you. And trying to lift this this cloud, you know, out of the out of mix and make it a more positive experience. What about going to church or being on time to church? I remember one time, and thankfully this didn't happen too often, not that we were perfect, not claiming that for one second, but usually we were in a pretty good spirit when we went to church. But I remember one Sunday that Chris had already gone for some earlier meetings and so I was bringing the eight kids to church, and we're about 20 minutes from the chapel. We're driving up there, and the, something started a squabble amongst kids. So all of a sudden, these kids are like kind of just all argue with each other, and it's a pretty contentious spirit. And I remember pulling over to the side of the road and saying, hang on. I mean, the kids are all like, why are you stopping? You know, we're going to be late. And I'm like, yeah, but why are we going? Let's, let's think. What's the purpose? What's the meaning of our going to church? And, you know, they knew. They're like, well, we're supposed to go and worship God and take the sacrament. I'm like, yeah, but like this? Like, again, have we lost the meaning? If we're going to go worship God, what do you think he wants of us right now? Like, what kind of attitude could we have? How should we be treating each other? And we kind of worked through whatever the little squabble was. I don't know that there was even much to work through there because I think it was just, you know, one of those things that kind of interrupted when, you know, kids are being kids sometimes. But we talked through and and they... And they responded because they didn't know what church was about. And it was like, yeah, that's true. We're just a bunch of hypocrites if we go fighting into sacrament meeting and all of a sudden we put on a nice face and, and we sit down, but we really don't have the spirit with us. We've, we've already chased it out of our lives. So if we're going to make an offering to God, let's let's try to do that well. So let's prepare for church better. Let's, I mean, I know it's easy to say, and sometimes there really is that last minute hunt for shoes or somebody... <laughs> you know, spills juice on their clothes or whatever. I get that. I get that. But again, what's the purpose? And are we losing any chance of feeling the spirit or helping our children have a more positive association with church if we're just screaming at all of them before we get in the car and then we're just racing every time? I remember talking in therapy with a couple. There's a lot of tension in this couple. They're not doing well. In fact, they were at risk of losing the marriage. And they had a bunch of kids, so that always tragic. But she was chronically late, and she admitted it. I'm not good at getting ready. I don't start soon enough or whatever. I'm waiting for the last minute sometimes, so I'm late. But then what he would do is instead of helping her, he would go out in the car and honk. So he's out there honking angrily, and they're hearing that honking inside, and she's just getting more frustrated because she's trying to get the kids finished up with their dressing and preparation, and he's not even helping. He's out there honking the horn. So by the time she would get in the car, you know, everybody's angry. Everybody's angry, and off they go to church. And he would be very resentful because sometimes they would miss the sacrament. Well, you know what? It's important to get to the sacrament. It is. That's the main purpose of sacrament meeting, is that we can partake of the emblems of Christ's death and renew our commitment to those covenants and to the covenant path that comes that is available to us through the atonement of Christ. But again, have we lost the meaning? Like, ironically, this guy was a seminary teacher, and you're kind of like, 
He's like, but I know how important the sacrament is. I'm like, yeah, more important having the spirit when you go into church with your family? Or what do you think the Lord wants right now between you and your wife? For by hook or by crook, you to shame her or pressure her into getting in the car sooner? Why, you don't even help with the kids? Or do you think he wants a family to come closer together? And yes, to work on preparation. But there's a lot he could have done to help those kids get out of the house prepared sooner and allowed his wife to have a little more time to get herself ready too. Anyway, I'm not saying it's always one person's fault on this. I am saying we need not lose the meaning. Another example of this, you know, kind of paying attention to sacrament meeting. Okay, maybe I'm I'm picking on things a little bit here, but I'm just going to throw this in because I was reminded as I was making my list here. I'm just going to invite people to be careful about using tech too much for our children in sacrament meeting. I understand that very small children are not really capable of paying attention and they don't really understand what's going on. I, I get that. I had lots of little kids. So we did bring our little quiet books or, you know, temple cards or paper to draw on and some quiet things for them to, to be, you know, kind of entertained with during sacrament meeting so that it wasn't too hard for them to stay quiet. But as they got older, and they don't have to be very old before they can start to pay a little attention. And this should be age appropriate because, you know, the, the very young ones, I mean, even for a while, you know, they're not going to understand every speech or whatever. But sometimes we can help them. We can whisper over and say like, oh, listen, this, this is a fun story that somebody is telling or this is a great experience or, you know, we'll talk about it later and I'll help you make sure that you understand. And we can we can help them start to to take in some of the the more accessible parts of sacrament meeting so that they can start to feel the spirit a little bit and they can realize that you've got to invest a little something in order to get something. And again, this can be incremental. Something that we did that I really thought worked pretty well, if you'll forgive me for saying so, was that the meal after sacrament meeting, when we all got home from the block and so on, we would we would usually do a little quiz and it would be kind of fun to see what the kids could remember. And they knew this was coming so that they would pay attention to some parts of sacrament meeting, again, at age-appropriate levels. But we would try to ask, like, okay, who remembers what the opening hymn was? You know, and who can who can give us part of a verse of that, you know, of that hymn? What, what was one of the phrases you liked? Or does anybody know that hymn, any of the verses? What was the sacrament hymn? Who can remember the closing hymn? Who can remember who gave the opening prayer? Who can remember who gave the closing prayer? Who can remember what color the bishop's tie was? Or which of the bishopric conducted and what color was their tie? Who can remember who spoke? Does anybody remember what the topic was today? Anyway, again, and we would do this in a positive, lighthearted way, and we'd kind of applaud, and they could remember. And obviously, we tried to give some easy questions and make, make the older ones wait so that the younger ones could answer <laughs> those questions. We'd ask, like, which young men were at the sacrament table? You know, do you remember who blessed the water? Do you remember who blessed the bread? So that the kids could start to key in on some parts of sacrament meeting. And my my concern about tech is just that tech is so involved for kids. They just love it. And we understand that. But they have this huge attraction to screens. And they get a lot of screen time in their lives. School demands it. You know, it's just everywhere. We use it for entertainment. I mean, I'm not anti-technology. Believe you me, I'm grateful for my tech. But I do think we have to be careful because if they are that absorbed in tech, and they typically are once they get into it, playing their games or looking up their stuff, you know, they can totally tune out. And they're not going to feel the spirit. 
and they're not going to hear anything. They're not going to learn to hear anything. And I see even older kids who are on their tech throughout some of our meetings, and that makes me pretty sad. And you know that this as well as I do that too often that bleeds over into their young men's and young women's classes or their Sunday school classes where they're still wanting to be on their phones and so on, and they don't put them down and try to try to absorb what is being offered. So be careful with that and try to make some positive energy incentives, not punitive, not punishing, not harsh, but engaging with maybe you can even give an occasional prize or an occasional little, you know, awards or rewards for, for paying attention to some of sacrament meeting and help them become accustomed to taking it in. So again, it, we don't want just the rigidity or the checklist of getting them onto the pews. We want them to start to listen and to engage at appropriate levels and to be encouraged, not punished along that journey. We used to use incentives occasionally. My husband came up with a great one. I may have mentioned this before, but our son Dominic was in nursery and he was having a hard time staying in nursery. He did not really want to go into the nursery. And so it was a little bit of a struggle to get him there when he was that age. And my husband came up with this great incentive one week. He said, okay, everybody who goes to their own class at church today will get ice cream after dinner. And you know what? He went to nursery and had no problems. <laughs> everybody got ice cream because everybody else went to classes willingly, and now he did too. And a couple of times of doing that, I don't know if you've heard this, but intermittent reward actually is much more successful than rewarding every time somebody meets the, the demand or the requirement, giving it every time ends up cheapening the activity. So giving it once in a while actually is much more effective. I'm sure you can find things online about intermittent reward that that helps with kids more than in every time you do this, you get the prize. And then I'm going to say this about activities, family activities and outings. Again, you know, if we are if we are demanding attendance, but the kids are really hating it, we need to restructure what about date night for husbands and wives? Are we just checking a box? Are we actually bonding with each other? Are we just watching a movie and not really talking? That's not really going to accomplish the intended goal. So can we look at these things and make sure we're not just checking a box? But the, I mean, it's great to do date night, don't get me wrong, but I've talked to couples where, yeah, they are very, very regular about checking that box and doing a date night, but they're not developing a relationship they're just checking a box. Honestly, this can happen with marital intimacy itself. Sometimes that becomes a checklist. And this is not the desire of our Heavenly Father. For this topic, please go review Elder Jeff Holland's wonderful speech of souls, symbols, and sacraments. He very clearly explains the intention behind marital intimacy. And if we are not, if we are not getting the purpose right, brothers and sisters, we need to re-examine. I'm not suggesting that we be celibate in marriage. I'm suggesting that we make these things meaningful. That is the intent for which they were given. And if we start to lose the meaning, just check the box. We're not going to get to our desired goal or get the blessings thereof. Remember this little phrase, I've said it before, women need to feel loved to feel desire. Men need to feel desired to feel loved. I think that's very well stated and true for many couples. There may be exceptions, but this is typically the case that women need to feel loved to feel desire. Men need to feel desire to feel loved. I remember in BYU, some of my students would say, well, how can that ever work if we're that different? And I'd say, no, it works great. It works great. It makes us very compatible. If a woman feels loved, she desires her husband and they're both happy. 
but let's make sure we're doing it right. And again, I reference Elder Holland's wonderful speech of souls, symbols, and sacraments. Please review that. Talk about it. Tell your children about the importance and the intention of marital intimacy. It's a great thing for them to understand from their youth so that they can have appropriate goals as they get married and experience these things for themselves. I would also add to this idea that women need to feel loved. I would say women need to feel safe. Sometimes we don't talk about that as much as we should because safety is an absolute prerequisite to feeling love. So many marriages are not really growing toward unity toward that genuine emotional, spiritual, and physical intimacy. This is so sad. I hear this all the time that, like, you know, marriages struggle, and it is a difficult relationship, but don't give up. But don't lose the meaning. Don't just check off the boxes, brothers and sisters. Seek the purpose of these things and be prayerful and thoughtful about it. And let's try to do better. We cannot force our partners on this path, and force is out of the question anyway if we want to do the will of the Lord. But we can invite we can try to persuade, and we can certainly try to maintain integrity ourselves in these and all our relationships. All three Gospels in this lesson talk about, I mean, the two, three that we're studying, Matthew, Mark, and John, all talk about the loaves and the fishes. Now, this is interesting. I'm not going to get into this too much. He feeds 5,000, and of course, that's the count of the men, and there are women and children as well. And we see here, again, Christ's control over the elements. In his first sort of public miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, we see a qualitative change to the elements. Water is turned into another substance, wine, and it's good wine. I love that. It's the best wine because <laughs> Christ does things well. Here we have a quantitative change in the elements where it's not about changing the loaves into something else or the fishes into something else. They just multiply beyond you know, anybody's understanding because Christ has dominion over the elements and they take up, you know, more leftovers than they had to begin with. So it's a pretty impressive miracle. And they don't want to disband at the end of that amazing miracle. So Christ actually sends his apostles off in a boat to go across the sea and then says he will disperse the crowd. And we don't hear any details about that, but he does that and he goes off into a mountain to pray. And then, of course, the apostles are rowing against the elements because a wind picks up and it's pretty choppy seas and they can't just use their sails. So they're exhausting themselves as they try to battle the waves. And then they see the Savior again with complete mastery over the elements walking towards them on the water. Now this is an amazing, an amazing miracle. And only Matthew adds this detail of Peter's attempt to also walk on the water. So he sees the Savior and he says, bid me come unto thee. And the Savior does. So Peter gets out and is successfully walking on the top of the water until he starts to fear. And then he sinks and says, Lord, save me. The Savior reaches out and saves Peter. In a comment that many people have <laughs> puzzled about, says, oh, ye of little faith, you know, why didst thou doubt? And we almost imagine Peter, I mean, I have a lot of affinity toward Peter. He's one of my many scripture heroes, and I, I really love this apostle. And he, he could easily have said, wait a minute, what about those guys back in the boat? <laughs> At least I had the faith to come out to you and to try this. But Christ knows what is coming. 
He knows what these men are capable of. They have faith, and he wants it to grow, to be ready for their calling to take over the leadership of the church after Christ's death and resurrection. So he is inviting them to stretch. And Peter wonderfully does not take this as an insult, at least the best we can tell. He is willing to be admonished and to stretch his faith. And this is evident again and again in the record of the New Testament that Peter keeps coming. He keeps coming. He makes mistakes, but he keeps coming. And eventually he has an incredible faith that leads the church after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. So a great man here, Peter, who is willing to be admonished, meek enough, humble enough to know that he can still grow and he needs to grow and he has a willingness to grow. And I want to talk about this next message, which is so important here in these sections, which is about the sermon that Christ gave in the bread of life. And this is in chapter 6 of John. I'm going to read something from Jesus Christ by James Talmadge. The supplying of manna to the Israelites, incident to the Exodus, and the long travel in the wilderness was rightly regarded as a work of surpassing wonder. Many traditions, some of them perniciously erroneous, gathered about the incident. So in other words, this idea of manna or the story of the manna, which was an actual miracle, gets exaggerated. Not unusual for, you know, history to be exaggerated, for good or for ill. But anyway, here we have some traditions which became perniciously erroneous, some of them, gathered around the incident and were transmitted with invented additions from generation to generation. In the time of Christ, the rabbinical teaching was that the manna on which the fathers had fed was literally the food of the angels sent down from heaven and that it was of diverse taste and flavor to suit all ages, conditions, or desires. So that's not the record that we have from the Old Testament. Remember, here it is, and they call it manna because that means, what is it? So they didn't know what it was, and we don't really get, you know, I mean, it's white and whatever. But it can't be stored overnight. We know that, or it becomes full of maggots. But we also know that they got tired of it, remember? <laughs> and that they are chastised because they get tired of this amazing miracle that comes to them every morning where they just have to go out and pick up the food off the ground. So it must not have been all that delicious or suited everybody's taste or condition or desire. But anyway, this is now the legend that it it had a taste and flavor to suit everyone individually. To one, it tasted like honey. To another, as bread, etc. But in all Gentile mouths, it was bitter. That's an interesting addition to the legend. Moreover, it was said that the Messiah, when he came, would give an unfailing supply of manna to Israel when he came amongst them. These erroneous conceptions, in part, explain the demand of those who had been fed on barley loaves and fishes for a sign that would surpass the giving of manna in the olden days as evidence of messiahship of Jesus. So here are these people who have been living in this you know, tradition, and they have heard these stories, and they have been told that when the Messiah comes, that he will feed them as their fathers were fed in the wilderness, this unfailing supply of this angel food that is going to be miraculous. So, you know, here they see him divide the, the loaves and the fishes, and they recognize that miracle, but they're looking for more. They want more. 
So let's read in John chapter 6, verse 31, where the multitudes are asking for more. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and that's Jesus Christ, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. We're now in verse 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, and every one that which seeth the Son, and leaveth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? So they start to murmur. And he says again later, I'm skipping down to verse 48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then they're arguing, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Christ explains, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. This is the bread, verse 58, which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. And their response is, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Now they understand what he's saying, and let's go on with Talmadge. A little later in that chapter, Talmadge says, there was little excuse for the Jews pretending to understand that our Lord meant an actual eating and drinking of his material flesh and blood. The utterances to which they objected were far more readily understood by them than they are by us on our first reading. For the representation of the law and of truth in general as bread and the acceptance thereof as a process of eating and drinking were figures in everyday use by the rabbis of that time. That's very important because we read this and it does sound kind of strange to us, doesn't it? <laughs> that like, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like that's a little bit of a weird metaphor for us today, other than, of course, understanding of the symbolism of the sacrament. But as a day-to-day, -day, you know, you need to eat this and drink this. But they understood because they had been told this on a day-to-day -day basis by their teachers. This was a very, very well-understood metaphor. That this bread represented truth.
truth and it represented the law that comes of God and that accepting that truth and that law was a form of eating and drinking. Going on, their failure to comprehend the symbolism of Christ's doctrine was an act of will, not the consequence of innocent ignorance. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ was and is to believe in and accept him as the literal Son of God and Savior of the world and to obey his commandments. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper, established by the Savior on the night of his betrayal, perpetuates the symbolism of eating his flesh and drinking his blood by the partaking of bread and wine in remembrance of him. Acceptance of Jesus as the Christ implies obedience to laws and ordinances of his gospel. For to profess the one and refute the other is but to convict ourselves of inconsistency, insincerity, and hypocrisy. This is beautiful, and it's so important. That's the end of Talmud's writings from Jesus the Christ. But such an important idea that, that the Jews understood this, and they were offended because their whole lives they had been taught by the rabbis, as it says, on a daily basis, this metaphor of accepting the law and the truth that comes from God as one would eat bread, as one would drink of blood and eat of flesh. And so here they know this, and Christ, knowing these traditions, comes to them and says, you have been looking for a Messiah who will give you bread as in the manna that fed your fathers, but that manna is over and those people are dead. And now I offer you bread that is life. I am the bread of life. I am son of God. They knew what he meant. He had healed them. He had healed their loved ones. He had miraculously fed them and they rejected him. The minute it was time to put up or shut up, they left. And it says, and this is tragic, in verse 66 of John 6, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. How many times have we been told that signs do not convert? Signs follow faith. Signs follow them that believe. They do not convert. They had seen so many miracles. And as I've said before, this was kind of like, you know, dinner shows on the shores of the Galilee. Here, let's go out and hear the rabbi. He teaches these really interesting things. And he heals our sick and he feeds us. Miraculously. It's, it's, these are dinner shows. And the minute he says, but this is what it means. I am the Son of God, and you need to believe in me in order to be saved. They're done with him. They're done. If you're going to ask us to do that, forget it. It doesn't matter the miracles we have seen. The dinner shows are over. Now it's no longer following him to the shores of Galilee. Now it's a path that requires sacrifice, that requires belief, and a testimony of the truthfulness of Jesus, the Son of God, and they don't want it anymore. So tragic, and then this is a tender, tender part of the New Testament record. In John chapter 6, verse 67, then said Jesus unto twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered 
Lord, to whom shall we go? As I said, Peter is one of my scripture heroes. What a marvelous answer. What a marvelous answer. Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can we, like Peter, can we not just show up for the dinner shows of the kingdom and not just say like, hey, sometimes there are great blessings to being a member. I mean, we have all these blessings, these fruits of gospel living and gospel membership. And yet when the going gets tough, do we just drop out and say, okay, forget it. This is too hard. Or can we, like Peter, say, where else are we going to go? I think I may have told this story before, but forgive me, I'm going to tell it again. There was a time when (laughs) I left to remember it. I felt pretty betrayed by God. There was a great blessing that I felt God had given me that would allow me to share some of his teachings. And and then that door got slammed closed, and it it didn't happen right away. I mean, it was after a period of time. It looked like this was going to be this great opportunity that I felt was a fulfillment of what God had, had asked me to do. And so I really had offered all kinds of hallelujah prayers. And I had been so grateful at what seemed to be this amazing miracle and a fulfillment of promises and desires that I'd had anyway. After several months, this door just got slammed shut. And it was it was a bitter time. And I, I just felt so betrayed. I was kind of like, Lord, you saw me on my knees saying hallelujah prayers for this opportunity. And I thought it was God-given and God-inspired and it was going to do your work. And now this is not going to happen. And it was, I don't know, it was painful. So I was, I was hurt. I was upset. I remember, you know, and it lasted for a few days and I was sort of in shock at first and then grief and mourning. And anyway, it was a Saturday morning just a few days later and I was on my knees and I was saying, Lord, you know I'm having a spiritual tantrum, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> just, we do have spiritual tantrums sometimes, brothers and sisters. We just we feel hurt, we feel betrayed, we feel like we're confused. The way the Lord is is working things in our lives, things that we thought you know were going to be given to us or promised to us or whatever, and it's taken away or somehow twisted into something painful. And and sometimes we have these spiritual tantrums, but hopefully they don't last too long. And that's kind of what I said in my prayer. And I used those words. I did say, you know, I'm having a spiritual tantrum, but I'm not going anywhere. I'll get over it. Please just be patient with me. And later that afternoon, Chris and I had to go to Costco and we had this list of things to get. And so we're kind of at the end of our list. And Chris said, is that all? Have we gotten everything on the list? And I paused for a moment and then turned to him and said, no, where are the cigarettes? And it was a joke. (laughs) And Chris's response was actually quite precious because... He looked at me and said, I always figured you more for a wine drinker. <laughs> and I kind of chuckled and I said, you're right. Why would I ever pick up such a filthy habit of smoking? But I could probably get into wine. And and we both laughed. It was this cleansing moment. The tantrum was over. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I just, I mean, what am I going to do? What am I going to go drink? Go smoke? Go have an affair? You know, like stop going to church? Like, I'm sorry, that ship has sailed. I don't want what the world has to offer. I don't want it. I want what the Lord offers. And even if the path no longer is on the shores of Galilee with dinner shows, now maybe it is a path to Calvary, which requires sacrifice and stretching and patience and faith at levels I didn't know I was capable of. But the Lord knew, and he knew he was preparing me for something 
wonderful. And if that path is difficult and hard and passes through the valley of the shadow, then so be it. Because to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? I don't want anything else anymore. I want this. And whatever the cost, whatever the journey, I know that it will be consecrated for my gain because God is good. But there are times of stretching. There are times of sacrifice. There are times that are painful times. To whom shall we go? We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Thou hast the words eternal life. May we stay true. May we stay true to this, brothers and sisters. This is the path. This is the way we can choose glory, by following Christ, accepting him as our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer, the Son of God, the living Son of the living God. We can do it. We can choose glory. We can build Zion. He will help us. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.